0: This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you a sensational episode where each story hones in on one of the four senses that accompanies taste.
1: Many of the smells that we uh, encounter in everyday life actually exist out there in the cosmos.
0: Food carries all these culturally specific meanings. The fact that, you know, when you see an apple, it's not just an apple, right?
2: I was mostly interested in thinking about what knobs ASMR was pulling on maybe, or how we could explain it from a psychological or emotional or evolutionary standpoint.
0: Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome TJ Douglas from the Urban Grape. In this episode, we'll talk to TJ about reinventing how wine is sold, making wine appreciation easier, and we'll hear TJ's Julia moment. Stay with us, we'll be right back. We continue to send strength to everyone coping with the pandemic, especially those in the hospitality industry, and we extend our gratitude to all the essential workers keeping us going. If you missed the presentation of the 6th Annual Julia Child Award to Danielle Nirenberg, co-founder of Food Tank, you can still register and watch it and other sessions from Smithsonian Food History Weekend on foodhistoryweekend.si.edu. As always, we launch the conversation, with an inspiration from Julia. Now, we know that Julia enjoyed wine, and while many think Julia drank it on camera, she didn't. That was either grape juice or colored water, but she definitely enjoyed drinking it with meals. From her time in Europe, she learned how wine was grown and made by craftspeople. When she returned to America, especially she spent more time in California, Julia became a big proponent of what was then an American wine industry still in its infancy. Her role in helping found the American Institute of Wine and Food, which is also known as the AIWF, and her subsequent relationships with pioneers like Robert Mondavi helped advance the American wine industry into its current place of global prominence. At the same time, what Julia hoped, just like with French cooking, was to make wine more accessible, less elitist, and easier to enjoy all things she found pretty commonplace in France. Someone who is carrying on Julia's legacy is T.J. Douglas, owner of The Urban Grape, an innovative wine store in Boston's South End, which he founded 10 years ago. Led by a signature method of how the wine is displayed and sold, The Urban Grape is unique among independently owned wine shops. It has won multiple awards, including being named Boston's best wine store and small business of the year, by the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce in 2020. In 2018, Vine Pair named the Urban Grape the top retail store in the Northeast, and Beverage Dynamics named it a top 100 wine retail store in America in both 2019 and 2020. TJ is the store's wine buyer, head of sales, and creator of its progressive scale and shelving system. His wife, Hadley, oversees its marketing communications. T.J. teaches about wine at the Boston Center for Adult Education, Boston University, and the Boston Wine Expo. He's also a frequent sommelier at the Nantucket Wine Festival. He and Hadley co-wrote the book Drink Progressively, which details the urban grapes wine drinking and pairing philosophy. We were introduced to T.J. through our friends at Boston University, where T.J. and Hadley recently established the Urban Grape Wine Studies Award for Students of Color. TJ joins us today to talk about how the Urban Grape is revolutionizing how wine is sold, and at the same time, making it easier to figure out which wine to drink. Welcome to the podcast, TJ.
1: That is an amazing introduction, Todd. Thank you so much, and I'm so excited to be here today.
2: We're excited to have you. So let, let's let get into the, the, the backstory from that introduction, which is, you know, Just the facts. So, how did you end up opening your wine store? What what led to that?
1: I mean, what led to it? It's a a long history of uh, my hospitality background. Uh, After moving from New Haven, Connecticut, to Bethel, Vermont, when I was 13 years old, uh, I started working as a dishwasher when I was 14 in order to, you know, make money to, you know, take girls out to movies and mini golf and buy baseball and basketball cards. And I really <laughs> liked working in a, in a restaurant, but I was in the, in the back of the house. Um, every time I would go out to help clear the salad bar, I would go out into the candlelit, you know, carpeted dining room. And mind you, this is, you know, a really nice restaurant in central Vermont, you know, 25 years ago, where, of course, you had an amazing salad bar in the middle of, <laughs> in the, middle of the dining room.
2: <laughs> that was classy. So,
1: <laughs> so classy. And so, uh, you know, I would go out there and I would see all these diners like under candle, uh, you know, candlelit table, um, you know, eating profiteroles and drinking wine. And, and I, I just really wanted that. I grew up, um, you know, with a single mother uh, on welfare. And that was just something that was, um, was just totally uh, foreign to me. So I, I wanted to, to, you know, be that person sitting at the table. But what I realized is that I really love service and making people um, feel good and, and feel like they've had some sense of hospitality and a you know, great experience. So I also want to be that person serving the table. So after I wanted to get out of the dishwashing, I moved up to the front of the house as a busboy, and that was giving me the ability to serve people and be in that candlelit setting. Uh, fast forward through uh, through junior high school, I get into high school. And, uh, a McDonald's opened up in our town. And, you know, I, I feel, I was telling my, my kids the other day, we don't, we don't eat fast food, but I was telling my kids that I feel that I'm responsible for some of the obesity in Vermont from the late, (laughs) from the mid to late 1990s, because I was really good on that drive-through window, um, and really good at supersizing. And so I feel bad (laughs) now, but you know, I've always had like, like a, a was
2: that, was that the start of your sales training?
1: That was the start of my sales training. Absolutely. And uh, you know, through through high school, I worked through there, and then uh, became a bartender. And then I moved to Boston when I was 21 after school. And so I'm 42 uh, at the time of this recording. So I've been in Boston for a little over 20 years now. And uh, this is really where, like, my front of the house restaurant career, my hospitality career started. Uh, when I moved here, I was a, a server, a trainer, and I'm kind of a big guy. And I was a I was also a, a doorman, a bouncer. And uh, I really loved making cocktails. I loved serving cocktails. This was in the, um, you know, the Carrie Bradshaw uh, Sex in the City, you know, the time period in the early twos. And so, you know, a lot of Cosmos, a lot of chocolate martinis. And, uh, <laughs> and after I, I left this restaurant called Vox Populi, uh, I ended up getting a bar management position. Uh, at Todd English's uh, Rustic Kitchen where I was the opening bar manager, and we were supposed to get a full liquor license. But the day before, we found out that we actually only were able to get a beer, wine, and cordial license. And that was really the start of my wine career, because we had this like cuvee system behind it, forced me to learn about wine, um, ran a couple wine lists, uh, ran a couple of restaurants, and then we can touch on this maybe later. But went into the distribution side and had the idea of opening up a uh, a store. And there's a great story behind behind that as well.
2: And so, did I? I was curious about this. Did you actually formally train as a sommelier, or are you actually kind of self-taught?
1: So I am self-taught. Uh, I think one of the best ways of uh, of learning uh, at least about wine and food is by by doing, by eating, by tasting, by drinking. Uh, by surrounding yourselves with you know extremely educated people, but also people that you might have a little bit more education of from, from what you've learned so that you're able to, to learn how to teach. Uh, my formal training, uh, not to be a sommelier, but my formal training uh, in terms of wine is going through the Elizabeth Bishop School uh, taught by uh, two master uh, masters of wine. And that is part of uh, Boston University. And uh, I've got, I went through that program and that taught taught me you know how to blind taste that taught me you know the the regions but really um i ran a restaurant on newburgh street uh in for a few years i think probably three or four years as the general manager and also the wine director there and i wrote my wine list in a progressive format uh, which i can get into Uh, i learned this progressive format of doing wine by the body as opposed to geographical region or by grape varietal from Kevin Zarelli. uh, He wrote an amazing book. It might be in its 30th plus edition now called Windows on the World. And he describes Mm. uh, wine and taught about wine in terms of body and in terms of acid. So a light bodied wine is like skim milk. A medium bodied wine is like whole milk and a full-bodied wine is like heavy cream. And then on the spectrum of, of acid, of, of mouthfeel of acid, you have lemonade on one side and hot chocolate in the middle or on, on the very end. And there's a great way to, to learn about wine on an even playing field. And so learning about that that way, going through Boston University's Elizabeth Bishop School, and also tasting a ton as a buyer and asking questions uh, from winemakers that I was able to meet and understanding farming practices, that was really all together, all of my education. And it's just really continued on since then. But, you know, do I have a pin that says, you know, I'm a certified sommelier that I know how to, you know, serve you uh, this way at the table? No, I used to, I used to make a joke. I, I think I'll still make a joke. that I'm not a sommelier, but all my friends are and all the people that have worked for me are. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, you could play one on TV. Well, no, I think that that's a, a great explanation, and and it, and I think it's great for people to learn that it, learn that there are many ways to sort of arrive at what you're doing, and that, that that you don't have to be a sommelier to be an expert on wine. So let's talk about what you were just talking about with the windows on the world model and how you've applied that. So you know. My understanding is that Urban Grape has a mission to take the intimidation out of beverages. And so you've developed this progressive scale and shelving system. So can you tell us more about that and how you developed it, how it led, you know, sort of you, how the Urban Grape was founded and then how that philosophy kind of serves your mission?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so when I was in the, in the restaurant side and I was uh, buying and I ended up writing my my food, my my wine list in a progressive format from light body to full body for whites and for red wines because my staff was extremely seasonal we had like a hundred person patio and you know coming from hospitality i felt it was a really unfair way to 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 answer a guest at your table uh if they asked a question about the wine or the food frankly uh and your answer was oh it's really good right there's 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 no depth there's no substance behind that answer whatsoever and so I needed to think about a way to train my staff so that they were able to give a good, solid, honest answer to to, to their guests so to have a better dining experience. So most food menus, at least American uh you know, uh inspired food menus, are actually written in a progressive format. So if you look at a uh American uh food list at the top you'll have really high acid lemonade style foods um sometimes chilled uh, typically a little bit lighter bodied right so you'll have you know, we're here in uh, in boston right up right near the water so we have a lot of seafood we have a lot of oysters right oysters are super high acid um, they're very light bodied but then you're sprinkling some kind of citric uh, citrus acid citric acid on top of it uh, or you're putting um you know balsamic on it, which is also very acidic And, you know, you start with your your high acid, cooler style foods, maybe even salads um, with olives in it, which, which have acid and maybe a little bit more vinegar or citrus on there. And then you go down to like, you know, your grains and your proteins and your desserts. And so from light body to full body on your food menu, the opposite side of the, of the menu was the light bodied white wines at the top and the full bodied white wines at the bottom and then light bodied red wines and then full bodied all the way to bottom. So when a guest said, you know what, I'm having this, this salad niçoise, how, how does this wine go with it? And the, and the server could honestly say, well, the way that our wine program is designed is that the foods up here go with these based on similarities in terms of acid and body style. And not joking, Todd, that within a couple of weeks of training my staff to be able to do this, um, we started tripling, we're on the road to tripling the restaurant's wine sales. Um, server's tips went up because they were providing better service and a better experience and selling better wine. And the comment cards, I don't know if people do comment cards anymore, but the comment cards really got, um, you know, they sort of overflow like, this is amazing. This is great. You know, I'm trying all these new wines, services are exceptional. And so that really, you know, proved that this progressive style worked. Hadley and I were uh, about to have our first child as a general manager. I was working you know probably close to 90 hours a week and that needed to end so i ended up going to work for a uh, wholesaler distributor where i was on the street selling to stores and mostly restaurants and i would provide my 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 uh, wine proposals for new placement in this progressive format and it made sense to the wine buyer it made sense to the bartender the retailer really didn't understand that because most retailers are set up by geographical region or by grape varietal um, but i did this for about four years and I had a great route. Some of the best restaurants in the city. I, I did like Ken Oranger's restaurant group. I did uh, Chef uh, um, uh, Daniel Bruce down at the Boston Harbor Hotel, who does the Wine Festival every year. I, you know, I, I did his menus, and it just showed that this was was a proven uh, concept. Uh, Hadley and I were in Italy um, sometime during that period, and you know, we were many bottles of wine deep, and she's like, you know, hey, see. <laughs> you know, what, what, what is your five-year plan? And I just like, you know, slam my hand down. And I'm like, this is what it is. I want to open up a wine store. We're going to set the store. up are going progress the format from white body to full body. We're going to use a, a scale of one to 10 to make it very, very simple. Um, and I want to do this now. And I've been thinking about it forever. And she was like, okay, well, wow. Well, why? And I said, you know what? <laughs> and this answers your question of, you know, kind of like, why did you open up the store? Um, being on the restaurant side and the sales side and, and selling to retail, I feel that, and frankly, being a consumer, that there's a lot of times zero hospitality in retail, right? Whether you're buying a shirt, a belt, tires, wine, uh, whatever you're buying, there's a there's um, not great hospitality, and that's the background that I came from. So I wanted to open up a store, run it like a restaurant in terms of when a customer comes in, they're greeted by some type of, of host with a smile and kind of you know understand what they're doing. Uh, with with wines that they want and we ended up doing it in a progressive format <clears throat> and in Massachusetts uh, as a as a liquor license holder I have 60 days to pay my invoices right so uh, you know if I buy a, a case of wine I have 60 days to pay it and with our opening order at our first store in Chestnut Hill which is a suburb right outside of Boston in Chestnut Hill we opened up in uh, June of 2010 and so fast forward 60 days after I bought all of this wine from all of my distributors, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of wine. And after all of my checks cleared, uh, because we, we did very well since since day one, uh, all of our, most of my distributors said, you know what? We didn't think this concept was going to work. We thought you were going to fail. I'm like, okay, well, first, you still took all my money. (laughs) You know, you didn't (laughs) tell me that at first. But the reason why they thought I was going to fail is because no one's ever done this and they've never seen it before. And it was really great because setting it up in progressive format using progressive shelving, you, Todd, can come into the the urban grape and let's say you're buying white wine tonight. You usually drink. Uh, Macon, you usually drink Brunner-Veltliner, you usually drink, um, you know, lighter bo- or heavier body like Albarinos or, or uh, Sauvignon Blancs. You might be in like a three, four or five section on the urban grapes progressive scale. So you'd see three or four wines that you know that you've had before, and then there's like 50 other wines around those that are going to be manipulated in that same style, no matter where it comes from or what grape it's made out of. And that's what drinking progressively is, is all about. And I taste on average about 6,000 wines a year. And um, when we taste, we think about, does this feel like skim milk, whole milk, or heavy cream? And wherever that falls, skim milk is going to be one. Ten is going to be heavy cream. Wherever that falls, that's where it sits on the progressive scale. So from left to right, light body to full body, and then to make it easy, we do lower price point on the bottom shelf, higher price point on the on the top shelf. And it's been really great so far.
2: And and so it seems to me that you're that really focuses on aiding discovery, and particularly Mm -hmm. caters to people who may be less familiar with what to choose or what they like to drink. But how does it actually work with I don't know, once you get introduced to this concept with regulars, are they do, using it a lot for discovery? Or what if, like, you know you like Chardonnay and you know you like California Chardonnays? Does that, how, how does that fit together?
1: Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a great question. So, you know, for people that have a lot of brand loyalty, right, I only drink Kendall Jackson Chardonnay, which we don't sell uh but i always drink (laughs) that you're not gonna you can get that
2: at the grocery store you
1: can get that at the grocery store and a lot of those people that have the brand loyalty might just shop at the grocery store right they want to just drink the same thing every single day and that and that's fine um but i feel that most people that that come into the urban grape and most people that get excited about wine and get excited about food they you know you're not going to eat the same food every single day you're not going to why drink the same wine every single day
0: so when they enter
1: the Urban Grape will will greet them, and um, you know instead of saying uh, you know someone's like oh I'm looking for a cheap bottle of wine and most stores are like they'll grab something off the shelf that they've been told to sell. Well here you go this is perfect without having the dialogue of what they're actually doing with it or what they usually drink. So when you come into the Urban Grape we'll like, say oh you know like well you know you're you're looking for a great bottle of wine perfect. Well what do you usually drink? Oh you know I kind of I'm kind of all over. Okay, well, what are you doing with it? Oh, you know, a bunch of us are going to be, um, you know, let's pretend this is pre-COVID. A lot of us are going to be, you know, having up on, being up on the roof deck. There's going to be about 20 of us. Okay. Great. And, um, are you going to be eating? No, we're just going to be drinking. So with our education uh, as, as, as uh, wine merchants, we say, OK, so, you know, it's warm out. There's a bunch of people. So it's probably not going to be super expensive they're going to be spending um, and they're not going to be eating. So you probably want something that's mouthwatering and crisp and probably a little bit lighter bodied with a higher acid. So we'll have that dialogue and it doesn't need to take five minutes. It could take 30 seconds say, oh, you know, the way that we're set up is light body, you know, to full body. And, you know. I recommend maybe the Sauvignon Blanc. How do you feel about California Sauvignon Blanc? And nine times out of 10, even not even if it's not 10 times out of 10, Todd, um, as you're reaching for that bottle of Sauvignon Blanc, the person might say, oh, you know what? I totally like this wine right here. And then, oh, wow, I like that wine too. And then they realize that at the Urban Grade, there are three W, right? So three white wine. And we have on uh, our these big picture windows overlooking the street. And it says, hey, Boston, um, what's your number? And then it says hint, we know the answer. So the the person that's new to the urban grape, they can explore without any blinders on, get them in their, you know, find out where their comfort zone is and then take them anywhere, right? Um, and then for the person that is, is a loyal customer that maybe comes in a couple times a week, you know, they might say, you know what, I'm always going to stay in that four, five, six section because I hate that California Chardonnay style, but I might be drinking a, California Chardonnay, that's manipulated more like a Chasson Montrachet, which is going to be lighter and more acid-driven. Uh, and it's just a, a great way to sell. And then we keep track of all of our customers' uh, profiles, so we remember the wines for them. So we know that if uh, you know they're heading down to the Cape uh, for a weekend and they say, hey, can you make us a mixed case? We know that for white wines, they drink a lot of two, three Ws, because they love Chablis and Sancerre, but they drink a lot of ARs because they love Napa Cabernet. And it's just a great way to, to service them, to bring our sense of hospitality and be a true wine concierge for them in a very unintimidating way. And just like the byproduct of having these conversations, which happen every single time at the Urban Grape, which typically don't happen in other you know, wine stores or liquor stores, is that the person does become educated but without us shoving information down their throat, which is intimidating.
2: I see. And I assume it also helps you to some degree as a retailer who tries to put more craft driven wines in front of people that are from smaller producers, which means as a retailer, you don't always have the same rinds that the grocery store has, but this is a way, Does it, is that right too, that it kind of helps balance out the, the maybe variation that's inherent when you're selling smaller producer wine?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, I work with some of the, the largest um, distributors in Massachusetts, and I work with some of the smallest distributors in Massachusetts. And I like to give everyone a just kind of even chance of bringing in great wines that we can sell and, and tell it, the story of the wine and story of the producer. Um, staying away from the big brands means that I'm not going to compete with other stores in a in a, in a sense of, you know, Whole Foods is always going to compete with a Trader Joe's and a Star Market, right? Um, a big box store is always going to compete with another box store. But if we're a little independent wine seller who has, you know, um, wine that fit every single budget, starting at $12 up to $5,000 a bottle for, you know, Grand Cru, um, Domain Romani Conti, we, we have that and we can provide that to our customers. But since we taste every single wine and you'd be surprised how many stores, um, don't taste wine before they actually buy it they just look at what they can buy it for how cheap they can buy it for and how much they can sell it for where we taste like the wine has to a have actual quality and b it has to have relevant quality right like we have to like it and most of the time we're selling wine by the story Uh, if you went to our our our, um our online store the urban grape shop you go to that you'll see that we have collections on there and collections might be uh producers of color it could be women in wine it could be farm to table for a lot of like biodynamic or organic wines and we we have all that stuff set up because we want to have something for everyone where we have something for everyone because we know our clients and we know what we want to educate them and share the winemaker story or the producer's story with them where competing with a larger store there's no story, right? It's it's a shelf talker that said this got 89 points and it's on sale, right? But it doesn't mean that you're going to relate to that product.
2: Well, we like stories. So we're going to take a break and we're going to be back to talk more with TJ about taking the guesswork out of buying wine, the stories it tells, and how the urban grape has weathered the pandemic. Stay with us. <laughs>
0: All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of Food Radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show.
2: Welcome back. We're talking to T.J. Douglas, the founder of Boston's groundbreaking wine store, The Urban Grape, about breaking down barriers in the wine world. So, T.J., obviously, your business has been affected in some way by the pandemic and also, I know, by the Black Lives Matter protests, which you, as a person of color, I assume, identify quite strongly with. So could you tell us a little bit about how both things have been affecting your business?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, very, very, very strongly uh, in a positive way. Both both of these have affected uh, the Urban Grape. Um, starting in March when uh, COVID hit and uh, most businesses in Massachusetts and frankly around the country uh, were forced to close, we were very lucky uh, in terms of having a liquor license. Uh, for retail because we were deemed an essential uh, business just as all other, you know, wine and spirits uh, retailers in Massachusetts were deemed essential. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I have so many friends uh, that are in the restaurant business, either in the back of the house or servers or a lot of sommelier friends, a lot of owner friends, and, you know, their businesses have been affected where so many of them have have closed down or have gone down to like, you know, 15, 25% capacity. Uh, for the consumer uh, they I think people are drinking more uh, I think that uh, people are cooking more at home because they're not going out and because of that they're they're drinking more they're cooking more and they, pretty much the only place that they can buy it is from a retailer like us so our business since covid uh, started has just absolutely gone through the rooftop and um, it's interesting is though in Massachusetts we might be the only liquor store or wine shop uh, that sells everything that has purposely kept our doors closed uh, to customers. So we tried it for about a week or so, but people were, in March, but people were coming in with their with their masks on and then, you know, pulling them down and touching bottles and bringing their kids in and we're like, come on, like this is this is not going to keep my staff safe, this is not going to keep me safe, this is not going to keep our community safe so we've actually kept our our doors closed since the end of march and business has really never been been more booming than, than it is now uh fast forward to uh the the night of um, uh, may 31st where there were some peaceful protests and great peaceful protests in boston uh for the black lives matter movement and hours hours after the protesters went home. Um, there was some vandalism around the corner from us. And then uh, hours after that, there was a, a vandalism for the urban group. But it was, you know, it was a broken window and it was kids with a sledgehammer. And they came in, they looked for money. But since we've been closed for a few months, we had no cash. for a credit card business. So they got no money. A uh, little bit of damage. But we uh, we think we handled it very well. Um, on our on our social media and our newsletter, we've always been an extremely transparent company. And Hadley manages all of our communications. Hadley's my wife and business uh, partner, and she manages our, our social media platform, all of our communications. And you know, we were discussing the night of the protest. Um, uh, you know, we were seeing some of the the damage that was happening in our city. Uh, you know, Sheila's. She was freaking out. I was like, I was really nervous. Okay, well, like, what happens if this goes into our store? Like, This is our family business. If, you know, if, if this store goes down, how can we pay our mortgage? How can we get our kids to school? I said, you know what, babes, like, we have insurance. If these people feel that they have to damage our store, we will be fine. That's why we have insurance. And, you know, the next morning, I go in, our window's broken, there was some damage. Um, and it was pretty scary being a black man in a broken into wine shop uh that was afraid because my alarm went off and that if i called the police when i was in the store that they could think that i was the person who broke in right not you know being a Mm. six foot three black man not being a Mm. you know the wine shop owner but being someone who actually vandalized so Mm. on our social media platform that day um you know we wrote about what happened and you know people were like oh you know i'm so sorry about your window and i'm like we were both like, this is not about our window. And so we ended up putting on that, you know, a window is, is not a life referring to, to George Floyd, and many, 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 many others. Um, and that, you know, got us some national attention with the New York Times, and some other, uh, some other platforms, and people uh, around the country really wanted to support uh, black and brown owned businesses uh, for the BLM movement. And that, We got such an amazing, such an amazing amount of community, um, both close community and, you know, community, you know, far, far, far spanning from Boston um, support both in terms of their thoughts, both um, actually not only in their thoughts, but also in their dollars spent Um, that that June 1st, the day that our window was broken and we went out. Uh, it was our busiest day as a company in ten years. It beat out Christmas Eve. It beat out Thanksgiving, and we had our best month because of that. Unfortunately, the supporting of Black and Brown businesses—what I've been reading around and what we've seen um, in, in, in Boston a little bit—is that that has gone down a little bit. That people have kind of, you know, put the focus on it now. They're backing up a little bit, but we're still mm-hmm. in a, a COVID pandemic, and so you know we're still you know, selling a ton of wine, keeping the doors closed, keeping people safe. Um, and, you know, I brought in more Black-owned and Brown-owned um, wineries and distilleries uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, so we're still supporting in that way. Uh, but as of uh, as of last month, by the time that this is uh, recorded, um, we sell over two-thirds of all the Black and Brown-owned wineries, wines, and distilleries in Massachusetts and we're 2,300 square feet and we have 10 employees. So there's definitely more that people can do around the country and the world. And, you know, the the wine world has always been, you know, dominated by, by, by white men and women, but honestly, a lot of white men. And I think a lot of that comes down to, um, you know, access uh, to restaurants, to uh, ingredients, you know, I mean, in, in black and brown neighborhoods, uh, they might not have the same access due to no grocery store that Julia would cook with back in the day, right? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there might not be access uh, to uh, being able to travel uh, to all the great wine regions and food regions of the world like Julia has been to, right? And so, yeah. you know, we're seeing some change, now, especially on the culinary side, there's a lot a lot of black and brown um, and Latinx um, uh, chefs out there, and you know, really want to try to support them as well as all of the uh, the uh, the wine and spirits people and sommeliers and just really everyone really trying to level the playing field. I'd love to talk about the uh, the award uh, later in this conversation, possible.
2: Yeah, no, definitely, we'll we'll get to that. I want to end on that. I, I wanted to stay on that though because I think that. It, I mean, it's not fascinating or probably news to anyone that the wine industry has remained very elitist, very European driven, and as a result, sort of very white male driven. Um, But I was curious, I mean, I think you, I mean, it sort of is what it is. I think you've outlined well that a lot of it has to do with affluence and access and education and ability Mm -hmm. to, I mean, mostly money. Can you buy fancy ingredients? Can you afford to travel? Can you afford to do these things that lead um what has led white people to be more informed about wine. But I was curious, I'm fascinated by what you were saying about, you know, selling two thirds of the black and brown owned uh, wine and spirits products and stuff. So uh, maybe taking more of the positive side of it, because I'm sure it's changing very slowly, but you outlined a little bit about how it's evolving what's been your perception as a person of color coming into the wine business and then also working with more and more makers? Like, are you seeing that people of color also bring a new perspective and, and a new vitality? Or is it more of a view of like, oh, we need to fit in to be accepted? What, what are you kind of seeing as things are slowly evolving?
1: I think it definitely brings um, a new energy and a new vitality uh to uh the wine industry uh you know having black and brown people actually come in to my store you know i mean even even to this day most of my most of my customers are white um and i say most of them because i live in an expensive city um i live in boston boston is a is a very you know we're a diverse city and, and you know in terms of education and stuff like that but like you know like boston itself like the south end and, and 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 back bay they're very very white um areas and uh you know years ago they were they were there were black areas but you know people have been you know moved out and uh and and pushed out of the city over over many many decades having um black and brown people know that wine and grape food can be for them uh is really the thing that gives uh me an energy to promote them and to get more black customers into the store and you know to promote you know to find you know producers of wine um that that are that are uh you know black and brown people because if a consumer who is black doesn't see anyone like them uh in a restaurant um uh you know either you know serving them or or uh you know selling wine to them as a somme or even being a a bartender or in a wine shop uh or better yet if you're reading a publication and you only see you know um, young white women drinking wine but you're uh young black women does that mean that that wine is not for you right uh do we see uh wineries uh on their websites when they do tastings or any kind of um, uh, event, is it just a group of white people in there? Okay, so if I'm a if I'm a young black woman, why would I ever hop on a plane and go to Napa Valley and visit this winery? If you know, I, you know, if I've spent so many years being the only one in a room, why put myself in that situation again? And so I think this vitality, it's 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 saying to black and brown people, like go. I don't think it's not as strong as going to sit in uh it's it's going in and being like look you know what you are welcome here right like if you don't feel welcome anywhere else come to the urban Grape. feel welcome if you don't you know think that this wine is for you try this wine this woman uh you know is a is a black woman who comes from a uh like a basically a shanty town in south africa and this is her pinot alarm. Like it happens to be amazing, and it also happens to be made by a person of color, and you'll really enjoy this. And it, what it does to them in that in that moment, time is, wait a second, I I didn't know that you know there was a black female winemaker, and I didn't know that there had any black women making wine in South Africa. I went to South Africa years ago, and as sales, that's that connection, right? And if you can connect people to a product or to an experience that that is a positive. Um, experience and a positive connection, you're going to, you're going to build them up, right? And then they're going to tell their friends and they're going to have more experience. And that's this energy and it's going to have a positive snowball effect. Um, but mentioning that, you know, we sell two thirds of, of the, of the black and brown uh, own uh, wine and spirits products in Massachusetts. So because I'm, I am responsible for more than half of them bringing them in, working with distributors saying, Hey, you know what? please, I will bring this in. I want to promote them. They need access to our market, right? I mean, we are, we're on the water. Boston is a great food and great hospitality town. Uh, their wines deserve to be paired with food here and deserve to be in the glasses of, you know, the, the Boston uh, population. And so bringing these in have been kind of tough before June 1st, even though I've had some in stock. Before June 1st, I've worked with, distributors saying hey can you come bring this in and they're like well you know i'm really not sure it's going to work So then i just kind of go down the line and it was always the small guys that would help me bring bring producers in um but after june 1st todd um you know some of the big guys were like hey tj you know we're bringing in this you know this this you know black owned business from california i'm like oh so you're hopping on the bandwagon which i don't like <laughs> why they're doing it but what's positive is that they're doing it which is providing access and then i'm going to support them as long as the line has actual quality to it which
2: they do well right it's the reversal of understanding of like oh you can sell this stuff there is a market for this stuff people do mm-hmm. care about it and it's kind of that amazing amazing thing is if you show the market and the money suddenly people get and just change their viewpoint a little bit sometimes they right. realize the benefit right right so, and
1: there's someone and there's so much money out there for the for the black consumer that they've never felt that it was you know is, is there, no, I, I think, think like, I think
2: you just illustrated it yeah. so well uh, with with the stories and that I think I think you know having been a marketer myself, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people say oh, advertising doesn't work on me or whatever. But those symbols of that are projected and often deliberately projected of who is this product for in on the website in the hour. It really does make a difference, and if you're mm-hmm. if you cannot see yourself in it, then you're going to think it's not for you just on the same way that marketers project a certain image because they're trying to seek who they think it's for, right? Right, right, exactly. So I don't want to run out of time to talk about what I think is quite exciting, The what we talked about at the top of the show, this uh, new, uh, I, I guess we'll call it a grant or fellowship, the Urban Grape Wine Studies Award for Students of Color with our friends at BU. So can you tell us about what that is? And And I know you've also designed it in a really unique way, so I wanted you to touch on you know, that it's, it's more than just he, here, here's some money to go study wine. So right. tell us more about that.
1: Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I've now been in this, in this wine and, and the hospitality business for pretty close to 25 years now. And, you know, as since I've always, not always, but the times that I've been a, a manager or a general manager or an owner as a wine shop, you know, it's been, I've never been able to, to hire black and brown people because they never applied for the jobs other than back of the house, right? Dishwasher, delivery driver, stocking, bus boy, right? And and a couple of years ago, I'd say probably about five years ago, I was really frustrated because one, I, I put a, an ad out um, for we were just you know rehiring for the urban grape. We're we're, we're building up our our, our employees here. And we ended up getting a resume from someone and it was like, you know, this person, uh, you know, all of their uh, resume was just filled with, with like warehouse uh, worker, Uber driver, and like, right, those are all amazing uh, jobs to have if that's what you're able to do and that can provide for, for your family. Well, what got me is that this person in their one sentence cover letter, Said, you know, I'm applying for anything, um, but I would like to be a stock boy. And I'm like, like that—that's not something that we actually advertise for. But the fact that that young man with a GED applied for a stock boy position is because that's what he felt that he was only capable of doing. And. You know, I'm like this. This this is horrible. This makes me feel so bad that I want to have a more diverse company, but there's no one's applying, right? I can't I can't hire anyone if they're not applying, and they're not applying because they might not have any education. They don't have any education because they don't know that wine is for them, right? Because they might not yeah, have yeah. Wine, wine on their table or where they live. So that was about five years ago. I said, you know, if we, if if this isn't gonna if the world's not going to change, we need to change it for our, for ourselves and for them. And so about two years ago, uh, we came up with the idea of doing uh, education and uh, a paid internship and mentorship program on the three sides of the business that I've worked in, retail, wholesale, and the restaurant side. And so two years ago, uh, Hadley and I reached out to Boston University because I've gone through the urban grape wine, I've gone through the um Uh, the elizabeth bishop uh program there said hey we're thinking about doing this we want to educate some more black and brown people into wine get them excited about wine and is this something that you could be into and they said yes this sounds great you'd have to raise the money and uh that was one part of it the other part of it was going up to uh, a wholesaler that we had a relationship with and a restaurant group that we had a relationship with and said hey we want to do this. We need to change the landscape in our industry in Boston and further. And both of them were saying, absolutely, we are absolutely on board. Uh, and so what this is, it's called the Urban Grape Wine Studies Award for Students of Color. And what this award is, it's a four level paid course. Um, so it's free, free, free for the student, the, the applicant. Uh, four levels. It takes about a year. And level one is, you know, this is wine, this is how wine is made, and level four is like let's talk about the globalization of wine and marketing. Right? It goes through that throughout the year. At the same time, uh, the student will go through three months each at, at the retail side at the Urban Grape, uh, Ms. Walker, which is the wholesaler, and then Tiffany Faison's uh, Big Heart Hospitality for three months. And so, this paid internship, they're going to learn how to wipe, write a wine list, work in the front of the house. They're going to, you know, work for a wholesaler, but be on the street selling wine, uh, work in the accounting department to make sure, you know, that people like me pay them, uh, sit on muted phone calls on how to get, you know, wine from the winery to Massachusetts and how it's distributed, right? And then for the retail, they're going to learn front of the house, they're going to learn how to run a brick and w- mortar, everything from this is how you stock to this is how uh, a retailer runs QuickBooks. And so, when this student comes out after the year, they're going to be the most, you know, desirable person in the hospitality and wine industry because they would have had education and they have um, the experience, the actual work experience, because you can't do one without the other, I think. And we were able to um, actually fund the award. Um, by ourselves initially with a $10,000 donation from myself and Hadley uh, and the Urban Grit, uh because of all the community support that we had from the Black Lives Matter movement. When everyone jumped in, our sales were so big, we took a chunk and we were able to start the award. Um, and then we had so much fundraising from people donating, this is amazing. Pat. We started this at the end of July. <clears throat> this is where the award started with the funding. From July to last week, we've raised $160,000 of this. Oh, so wow.
2: That's so great. We
1: raised so much money. B, you said, well, how about two students? And we said, yes, let's do it. So we are doing this. And what this is, we're we're endowing the fund at $200,000, uh, which, which we'll definitely hit. And what this does, it puts two students in perpetuity through not only the Elizabeth Bishop School, at Wine Education, but it also puts us through a paid internships with our three companies in perpetuity. So this is not a one-time thing. And this is what's gonna change the landscape because when you go into Tiffany's restaurant or you are on this uh, a wine buyer in a restaurant and a black person, even though they're interning, is coming in to sell you wine, that's gonna change your perception. It's like, huh, I never really thought about black people Telling me wine before, right? <laughs> and so that's going to be the, the change, right? And that's not marketed. That's going to be organic. And then we're going to do this next year, and the next one starts in January. The next one starts in September, September, you know, January after that. And this is going to happen as long as the program exists, which is going to be decades from now. And so we're really, really excited about that. Well, I am tell. too.
2: I, lo- <laughs> I love that. And I, I love the design of it, um, not only that it's specifically to you know, kind of build more TJs in the wine business, but Mm -hmm. also how well-rounded it is that you thought about like how you came to it and how much I think you think it's given you an advantage to really know all sides of the business. Mm -hmm. So I just, I love it. I think it's really admirable. And I'm very excited that you raised enough money to start off with uh, uh, two folks at the beginning. So we look forward to following up with you about how it's going.
1: Yeah, one's actually at the store today as we record the the person started in the middle of September. So this is,
2: this is, this program is working
1: now. This is not something that we're designing for the future because we've already had, you know, all of our, you know, mise en place, right? All of our things have been in place for almost two years now. And, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement as well as the pandemic has allowed us the funding to, you know, kick it off. So we're so psyched.
2: Well, we love our uh, COVID silver lining stories, so <laughs> thanks for that. All right. After the break, TJ is going to share his Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf, and let us know what you think about today's show, and share your ideas for future guests. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're
0: alone in the kitchen,
2: who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, TJ, what's your Julia moment?
1: It's a great moment. So unfortunately, I've never met her, um, but I know a bunch of people who have. But my moment um, is about eight years ago, and we moved into our new house in Jamaica Plain, which is a section of Boston. Uh, We did this seven days before Christmas. Uh, The day we moved was a record-set blizzard uh hadley and i were in the middle of like just ridiculous crazy retail season but we were determined to have a great christmas for the kids i'm i'm a huge santa fan and you know i wanted to make sure that this was great uh the morning after we moved in i went to allendale farm which is this great farm around the corner from us and i grabbed the basically the biggest tree that i could find and uh you know shook all the snow off of it and set it up in the living room uh we didn't have any furniture, but we had a tree, and that was really exciting for me. Uh, Hadley pulled out the mastering art of French cooking and got all the ingredients for Julia's legendary booth bourguignon. Of course, she didn't really read through the instructions first, and didn't realize how much more involved Julia's recipe is than a regular beef stew. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, it takes some time to make. Yeah. <laughs> a
1: little bit more. So I'll never forget, you know, seeing her in the kitchen on Christmas Eve, just surrounded by a ton of moving boxes and, like, presents and wrapping paper. And, you know, she was so close, Todd, to just losing it, right? Um, but also <laughs> never forget how we all sat down for dinner on Christmas with the hot buttered noodles and Julia's Booth Bourguignon perfectly paired with a bottle of 2000 Giuseppe Quintarelli Valpolicella Policello Classico that I was saving. And it was perfect. And it was a great way to start the next chapter in our life.
2: Oh, that's lovely. I love it. And I'm glad you said what you drank with it. That, 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 that was really important. Mm. Oh, that's a great one. Thank you.
0: Oh, absolutely. And thank pleasure.
2: you. And I'm so glad we were able to do this. So uh, thank you for being on today.
1: Absolutely. My
2: pleasure. Thanks so much, Todd. Our pleasure. To learn more about TJ's Wine Store and for information on the Wine Studies Award at Boston University, you can go to theurbangrape.com and you can follow all the adventures and advice and new finds at Urban Grape on Twitter and Instagram. And TJ is at Urban TJ on Insta. Tell your friends about the foundation and this podcast. We're at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from the French chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review, really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritageradionetwork.